this week on Missions Today. My husband and I were the only medical staff and we would travel from rural area to rural area every day going to a different place. Initially, when we were first here, when testing first became available, when we would test for HIV, in a single day we were diagnosing 250 people a day with HIV. If I contrast that to today, it's less than 10. So just to give you an idea, of, and we are 700 staff now with uh, many moving parts, moving teams, moving all over the country with fixed sites, seeing about a thousand people a day. So just to give you a bit of the contrast. Incredible challenges and extraordinary opportunities. Those have been part of the life of this week's guest for many years. Hi, I'm Colin Lambert, and this is Missions Today from Resource Global. Echo Vanderwall and her husband visited a small African country around 2004. What they saw would change their lives forever. The HIV epidemic was raging, and there was little that the healthcare system there could really do. Having both been called by God at an early age, they quit their jobs in America, packed up, and moved their family to Eswatini to bring healing and hope to the thousands on the ground suffering from this horrible virus. They did that through founding an organization called the Luke Commission, a faith-based NGO providing compassionate, comprehensive health care and the love of Jesus. Echo, thanks so much for joining us today. We want to learn more about your story, but let's start with a little bit about the Luke Commission. Well, in 2004, my husband and I came to Eswatini for the first time after being called as young children to work overseas in healthcare. And when we came, we dropped into the epicenter of the HIV, worst of the HIV pandemic in the whole world. And we really felt that God was asking us to go to the people where they were. We saw huge barriers in people having access to transport. And so they were staying home and many people were dying in their homes. In fact, during that period, 20% of our country was orphaned. And so we felt that God was calling us to go to the rural areas and that was in 2004, actually. It's our 20th year of um, working in Eswatini. And we looked around to see who was doing what we felt God was calling us to. And there weren't any organizations in the country that were doing what we felt God wanted us to do, which was to go to ground level, like to the people. And so we founded the Luke Commission at that point. Americans, the West, tend to be pretty poor when it comes to geography. I have been to Africa seven, eight times. I have friends who live in Africa. I don't know that I've ever heard of Eswatini. Why is it that most people probably have never heard of this country? Eswatini was actually a British protectorate. And on the 50th year of their independence, they actually changed their name back to Eswatini. It was originally Swaziland. But that was the name under the British protectorate. And when they reached their 50th year of independence, they there was a decree from the king to change it back to Eswatini. Eswatini, formerly Swaziland, located uh, in southern Africa, about five hours from Johannesburg. So that's a little bit helpful for context. I think I heard you say that you and your husband felt called to some kind of mission or medical mission as children. Tell me about that. When I was eight years old on a Wednesday night in church, I was sitting on the front row and there was a missionary that was speaking. They weren't medical, but they talked a lot about all the medical needs and that there were no, no one to do those medical um, activities in their area. And I felt at that time at eight years old that God was calling me overseas to work in healthcare. And my husband, when he was 17, he felt called into missions as well. 
And then we met when we were 19. And I can easily say we probably fell in love first with the fact that we both wanted to do the same thing in life, but we've had a wonderful time uh, pursuing God's calling on our life together. Now, if I remember right, both of you trained in your area of work in the U.S. Tell us what you both went into and the training you got. My husband is a physician uh, specialized in internal medicine and pediatrics, IMPEDS. And I went to PA school and I worked mainly in surgery and pediatrics before I mostly do full-time administration work now. Let's talk about that decision for you two to take your individual missions and bring them together. You you talked about maybe even first falling in love with the fact that you both had a desire and a heart to do missions, which I love. Where was the decision made and when to make the connection, get married and and head out on this incredible excursion? Well, we met when we were 19. We married when we were 21, just three weeks after we graduated from undergrad. And then we went to medical school. And when my husband was finishing his residency, we always knew that we felt God was calling us to Africa, but we didn't know where, and we didn't know what it looked like. And then when my husband was finishing his residency, we actually did our training in Ohio. And when he was finishing his residency, we had a friend who introduced us to someone in Eswatini. And so our first stamp in our passport, either one of us out of the country ever was to come to Eswatini in 2004. Now, that trip in 2004, it, it seems, was really a life-changing experience. Talk for a moment about what you saw and experienced when you arrived there. It was uh, very profound and impactful what we saw. Uh, we got off the airplane and somebody took us immediately to a rural area. And what we saw were people, mostly middle-aged people, young people, uh, 20s to 40s, in every house that we went into were dying from HIV. It was an absolute war zone on the ground. And um, at that time, there were no antiretrovirals, no treatment for HIV. There wasn't even a way to test someone to see if they were positive for HIV. So definitely, you know, just in those early days. And when we talked to people, there was a really, really bad stigma initially. And people felt uh, very rejected when they thought they might be positive for HIV. And we felt at the beginning that God was really placing on our heart uh, he gave us a phrase, treat every last one as your mother, father, brother, sister, or child. And this has really guided us in, in so many decisions while we've been here. When the tough decisions come, you know, if you ask yourself the question, what would you do if it was your mom? That really changes the perspective and, and gives you a filter that can actually guide you to a decision that's probably the right decision. And so in those early days, we we started going, we just worked initially with a team of about 10 local staff. And my husband and I were the only medical staff. And we would travel from rural area to rural area every day, going to a different place. Initially, when we were first here, when testing first became available, when we would test for HIV, in a single day, we were diagnosing 250 people a day with HIV. If I contrast that to today, it's less than 10. So just to give you an idea, uh, and we are 700 staff now with uh, many moving parts, moving teams, moving all over the country with fixed sites, seeing about 1,000 people a day. So just to give you a bit of the contrast, about one in every two people was testing positive for HIV at that time. Talk for a moment about uh, the lack of care when you arrived. You mentioned the fact that there didn't seem to be anybody or anything really coordinating the effort to fight HIV. Give us a little picture of that. And then what led you all to say, okay, we're the ones to do this? Well, I would say in those early days that it was 
you know, information was not shared quite in the same way it is today, where it moves faster and, you know, people would be in certain areas and really some people felt like they were bewitched and there was other reasons why they got HIV. Also, I was speaking about the stigma and we would ask the patients why they weren't going to the hospital and they would say, if I have to be treated like that, let me go home and die. And we, we have a very quiet, shy, stoic personality in Eswatini. And unlike maybe you and I, that if somebody mistreated us in a hospital, we would write a letter to the administration and make a complaint. People were going home and dying just purely because of the fact that they did not feel love and compassion in the people who are taking care of them. And these were very important things for God to show us early on so that we would know what the manner of approach should be. And so, um, you know, it's is Luke Commission Compassionate Medicine is a tagline that we've used for a long time. And that really has been the cornerstone because in a disease that's very stigmatized in a highly spiritualized environment uh, quickly can make people not be able to access care because of those issues that are so prevalent in society. Talk about the beginnings of the Luke Commission. Obviously, you don't just walk into a country and, and set up a shop, if you will. There's a lot to it. Talk about those early days of of getting the Luke Commission set up and maybe some of the things you did initially to begin to make a difference? Initially, the big, I would say, you know, mandate from God was to go to the people. Don't ask the people to come to you because transport was such a barrier to people accessing any type of care. And, and we recognized quickly that the logistics of running a mobile unit, uh, they were quite precise and need to be done in a certain way to be efficient and effective. And so we decided to start the Luke Commission. And as I mentioned before, it was very small, but I would say those first eight years were really critical for my husband and I to be on the ground. I, I often say we have 386 chiefdoms in our country, and I have the dirt on my shoes of every one of those 386 chiefdoms many times. <laughs> and that sows into your heart in a different way when you've walked with the people, you've walked where they walk, you are in their homes, you understand the day-to-day -day challenges. So I would say that initially, as I mentioned, I've, honestly, they made fun of us at the beginning. Like people were just saying, what are you doing? It's crazy. People would ask us, are you committing professional suicide? Well, maybe, but you know, it's what God said to do. So we're going to do it. And it, it was just such a blessing for those first eight years to be able to move out in the communities. And alongside of that was the fact that my husband, when he was in his residency, when he was in his residency, we had triplet boys. So when we came here, we had a four-year-old triplets and a one-year-old son. And we went to these rural communities with the boys. And I had no idea how God was using them to break down stigma because when we would go to the communities, they would just run around. And of course they would touch people and hug people. And, you know, we never stopped them from doing those things. And I didn't realize how much that was communicating through the children that, oh, if they're not worried about their children getting HIV from touching someone or being around someone, I certainly shouldn't worry, you know, about myself. So I think there there was a lot of bridges that the kids built for us over the years. Our kids did school on the bus. And when they got there, they did video school. And when they got there, they had to stay on the bus. They were done. We would be busy taking care of patients. When they would get done, they would get off and start working with us sometimes, playing with the kids sometimes, you know, running around like kids do. But it, it was really, really precious time. And then 
we knew at some point that God was telling us that we could not be the cap of what he wanted to do here and that we needed to start training our Joshua's and, you know, moving from where you're the only two healthcare professionals to having a team of healthcare professionals um, is, it, it just seemed very natural because I really felt like God was, God was moving us in a direction that um, we, the organization needed to outpace us, if I can put it that way. And um, it's been such a blessing just to watch over time. Our roles have shifted and changed uh, probably a thousand times. Um, and we have really grown as a team now of 700 where we don't really look at individually what we're doing, but what does the big picture need? What is the most important role for you to fill maybe for that moment or for that week or for that month or for that year to take the organization from where we are to where God wants us to go? It's been a real blessing just to watch um, the team grow. Scaling compassion then, you know, is something that that we really had to focus on. About eight years ago, we realized that now many of the people that were working for us were actually orphaned during the worst of the HIV pandemic. Now they're adults. They have not had any place they belong. They've been so traumatized. And we heard very clearly from God that what are you going to do? You're taking care of everyone out there physically, but what are you going to do to heal the hearts of the adult orphans who work for you? And that was a very pivotal time in our organizational history because we recognized that we need to put a lot of energy internally. And that's what was going to be a catalyst to be being able to do exponentially more than what we could do as broken, traumatized, unprocessed, grieving human beings. And so, you know, that process of moving from the two of us to now 700 people, I would say has definitely been a journey and something that God continues, you know, to mold and shape our hearts to know what is the next step to maturity. And so we're really grateful to, to have journeyed through this. I will also add on that when God said, what are you going to do to heal the hearts of the adult orphans who work for you? He said very quickly then to you are also an orphan. And I think just very important for all of us to realize that the inner healing and continuous inner healing process is so critical to us operating in a state where we have excess to give rather than always operating from a state of just being able to make it through or just surviving, but a position of thriving. So I would say that God has used a lot of these growth opportunities for us over the years to be able to prepare us for, you know, some of the things like I know you mentioned about the oxygen plant moving into COVID and we had a, a very serious period of civil unrest in our country. Um, and so so this morphing that he's done to us over the years has has really been a blessing. I want to talk about a couple of those specifics that you just mentioned. Uh, talk for a moment about any issues you've had with the country itself. You mentioned civil unrest. Tell us a little about that and what happens to ministry and to uh, service and to compassion when you're in the midst of something like that. Eswatini historically has been known for peace. In fact, we're very proud of the fact that we are a peaceful nation. And if you look at history, it has been a peaceful nation. There's never, ever been a civil war or civil unrest in the country. 
and uh, just a bit about his background. We are the last absolute monarchy in, in the continent of Africa. And, and we have one tribe because it's a small country. So we don't have those tribal challenges maybe of other African nations. We have been relatively very peaceful. Things are quite safe. We were all very shocked in 2021 when civil unrest broke out. Of course, you know, if you look at the timeline, our first wave of COVID was in mid-2020. And in December of 2020, our country ran out of oxygen. We were dependent on South Africa for all of our oxygen. We ran out of oxygen and we, we lost a lot of lives in the second wave of COVID in Eswatini. And then in 2021, mid-2021 in June, just as the third wave was coming into the country, we had a period of very severe civil unrest to the point where our supply lines were cut off from South Africa and from Mozambique uh, for things like fuel and oxygen and other essential supplies. And it, it, it shocked the nation. We were all shell-shocked, like, because it's just not something that's ever happened before. You know, during those periods, even starting with COVID, there was there were challenges at national level with the government hospitals responding to COVID out of the normal fears that were there for everyone. And then you couple civil unrest with that, where there were the same fears and, and frustrations. And it really, during many times during this two-year period, our hospital was the only one receiving patients in the country. So, you know, when I then reflect back on how God took us through this period where we really had intense focus on inner healing, I realized what he was preparing us for. Because if we would have been burnout, worn out, you know, not working from a place of, of recovery or inner healing, it would have been very hard to respond in a nation being the only hospital that will actually receive patients. But that, that did happen on several occasions between 2020 and 2022. Talk for a moment about just the infrastructure of the organization and maybe on the tail end of that, when did the oxygen plant come around? In other words, do you have facilities across the country? You talked about going to people's homes. Do you have hospitals? Tell us a, just a little bit about the infrastructure of the Loot Commission. For the first eight years, we actually rented a house in a city nearby to us. And then in 2013, uh, God opened the doors for us to be able to buy about 35 acres in the center of the country. It's very centrally located in the country. And subsequent to that, we were able to extend that to a river nearby to us. So we own about 150 acres in the middle of the country uh, that gave us a kilometer of riverfront access to the biggest river in Eswatini. And that was very important for our water security. This was around 2013. Uh, the land that we bought was a farm. There was a very small dairy barn that was not operational on it when we bought it. So since then, we have built uh, 25 buildings here. We have our own construction team, steelworks, plumbing, electrical, woodworking, basically everything's done in-house. So now we have this centralized referral center that has an inpatient hospital and we, we do a lot of critical care. So it has an ICU. So basically from preventative care to critical care, because we start in the communities, as I mentioned. So the community work is very has always been key for us with the hospital work being a place to identify what needs to be strengthened in the commu at community level. So one of our post-worst of the HIV tsunamis was that 
our, our leading cause of death for women in the country right now is cervical cancer. So recognizing that in the hospital where you have palliative cases, you know you have to back up to community levels. So as I mentioned, for the first eight years, we started in the communities doing outreaches, and then we bought this land, established a hospital here, mainly to admit people that we found in community level that needed hospital level care. But from this centralized site in Eswatini, we also deploy about 12 to 15 outreach teams a day. And we have one other permanent site about a half an hour from us. So that that's kind of, I mean, in anywhere in the country you can get in two hours. So being centrally located, it's very critical for supply chain. It's very nice to have a centralized hub. And for all of your support teams, like fleet maintenance, biomed, and all those things are centralized at the Miracle Campus. But we're really grateful for the land. It was an absolute miracle, uh, which God gave us the funding for that land in 17 days in February of 2013, just 11 years ago. What is the prevalent religion or religions and how have people responded to the work that you've done in the name of Jesus? Our prevalent religion in Eswatini is actually a mixture between Christianity, Judaism, Catholicism. My husband calls it a mushpot. Of course, all of the ancestor worship and traditional beliefs. And that's all mixed together, really. Obviously, there are other denominations, um, but that's the majority of our population. We would call ourselves Christians. But many of us would not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. What has been a joy for us is that the door's already open. There's not a resistance to believing in God, but understanding that our relationship is one that we have personally with Jesus is something that a lot of people don't understand. So we are very careful to make sure that everyone has that is willing has an opportunity to accept Christ because it, it might not be something that that they would have done even if they've grown up in church their whole life. So definitely open and fertile soil, uh, but we need to be intentional in our giving people an opportunity to have that personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So for instance, at our hospital, our spiritual care team is up there twice every day at every change of shift, praying with the staff as they're going on and off duty, as well as praying with all the patients and giving them the opportunity to, to accept Christ as Savior. And definitely during COVID, there were people that were accepting Christ moments before they died. So we understand that, you know, the medical work is just a door opener to eternal life. It's a blessing to be able to be in that door and then be able to open that door and just be able to have the opportunity to to work deeply in people's lives when they're maybe in their most vulnerable moments. How can our listeners and viewers pray for you and your team? Well, as a result of the of COVID and civil unrest, and we've had uh, severe drug shortages in the country for, for various reasons, we have experienced a 450% growth in the last four years. And we've seen about 300,000 patients a year now, which is about a third of the people that go to hospitals in a year in the country. And so we would really pray, uh, ask the listeners to please pray for uh, sustainable ways for us to continue taking care of people. It's a huge growth curve and keeping up with that um, is difficult at times, uh, but we really trust in God that there will be new ways um, that he supports his work. You know, we just feel like we've been standing on the sidelines watching God do his miraculous works. And, you know, we've had a front row seat. Obviously, there's some shrapnel when you're on the front row, but it's been really an amazing journey with him. We know that it's not our strength, that it's his strength. And, and that's something that we're very careful to remind ourselves of every day because 
sometimes if you look at the situation, it seems overwhelming. But if, if you rest in his promises and not demand the outcome that you think it should be, it's it's like he always brings something better than you could have anticipated. So I know that the team has impacted and the work of the Luke Commission has had a great impact on Eswatini, but I would say that probably all of us feel more impacted than the work that we do. But I do think that it's amazing to think about how God created us, he as the head, and we as his hands and feet. And we know that God doesn't need us, but he wants us to be his hands and feet. And I think recognizing that God can do miracles with you or without you is important because you're not really needed in the equation, but he has a desire for this relationship with us. And through that relationship, we get to carry out his works on this earth. And so it is, it's just been amazing to watch what he's done. We can't explain it. It's, it's a miracle to us as well. So we're really grateful just to have had him to lean on and carry us in so many difficult and unknown situations. But it's, it's really been a joy to journey over the years and, and see what God's capable of. Well, as you can tell from Echo's story and the story of the Luke Commission, God is able to do far more than we can think or imagine. What a powerful story of these two Christ followers. They committed themselves to the Lord at an early age and still are having an incredible impact in the lives of people today. May we be faithful as they have been. To learn more about Echo or the Luke Commission, be sure to check out the links in today's podcast notes. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Next week, we're going to talk to one of the men leading the effort to share Jesus the Messiah with the Jewish people. You know, it's helpful for us if you would subscribe to the podcast. If you listen all the time, just click that button, subscribe. Rate it if you have a chance. Rate each episode that you listen to and leave a review as often as you are able on iTunes. It really is helpful with circulating the program to folks who need to hear it. If you have feedback for me, I'd love to hear from you as well. You can email me, clambert at missionstoday.com. That's clambert at missionstoday.com. And be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Missions Today Radio. Look forward to being with you here next week, same time, Missions Today, a production of Resource Global.